Welcome to Christian Natural Health with naturopathic Dr. Lauren DeVille. Christian Natural Health is the podcast on how to get and stay healthy God's way. You'll hear topics on nutrition, exercise, sleep, avoiding toxicity, meditating on scripture, what supplements to take, stress management, defeating anxiety and worry, how to reconcile Eastern medicine approaches with Christianity and a whole lot more. Now, here's your host, Dr. Lauren. Welcome back to another episode of Christian Natural Health. Today, I am excited to have Dr. Glenn Livingston with us. Glenn is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. He has sold 30 wait, 30 million of marketing consulting for uh, consulting services over the course of his career. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. More important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Welcome, Dr. Livingston. So glad to have you. Thank you so much. Please call me Glenn. Glenn, absolutely. Uh, For sure. So tell me a little bit more of your own story. So what was your previous relationship with food like and how did you change that? Well, have you ever tried stopping by a pizza place or a 7-Eleven on Long Island in New York? No, I can't say I have. If you did and you found that they were out of pizza or Pop-Tarts, the odds are that I was there before you. If it was in the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if, I, if it was in the 80s or 90s, um, I, I had a problem. Let's just uh-huh. say I'm not, I'm not just a doctor that worked with overweight people. I, I had a problem. I had a uh-huh. serious problem myself. Right, right. It started when I was about 17. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm 6'4". I'm modestly muscular, muscular without doing much about it. And um, I figured out if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Mm. And multiple pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolates, lattes. They didn't call them lattes back then. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I didn't think it was a problem. I, I thought it was, like Doug Graham says, a superpower. And it really wasn't a problem until I, I mean, I wasted a lot of time and energy, I think, but um, I was only 17. And, you know, by the time I was 22, I was married and I was commuting two hours each way to go to graduate school and see patients and take classes. Mm-hmm. And then I would come home and I would have to um, you know, I have to work on the business and then God forbid my wife wanted to talk to me. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I, I just didn't have more than a, you know, a half hour a week to work out at best. Oh my. But, but I found that the food still had a, had a hold of me. It was like it had a life of its own. Yeah. And I was still eating like that. And I got to start to get a little heavier and then a lot heavier, but that wasn't really the major problem. Mm-hmm. The, the major problem was that I got obsessed with the food. I, I would be sitting and talking to some suicidal adolescent, and I'd be thinking, when can I get the next pizza? Oh, right? boy. Yeah. And, you know, when you're – being a psychologist was always exceptionally important to me because I come up from a family of 17 therapists. Oh, wow. And, yeah, everybody – um something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels. Nobody knows how to fix <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. so, so it was very, very important to me to be a good psychologist. That's a joke, but it was a very soulful life. It was really the most important thing to me. Yeah. A- and in order to help these people, you have to lend them your soul. You can't, you can't just intellectually figure stuff out, you know? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so 
I wasn't as effective as I could have been. I never lost anybody because I, I made up for it by studying hard and really working hard at it. But I, I wasn't as effective as I could have been. And it really bothered me. Right. And uh, over the years, I worked with couples and children. And, and there, were, there were just so many times that I felt like I could have been doing so much more. And being a psychologist, I figured that the problem was in my heart and my soul. It wasn't really a physiological problem. It was in my heart and my soul. And so I tried to love myself then. I went the traditional route, Mm -hmm. right? Like I I went to see other psychologists. I went to see, you know, the best psychiatrists and nutritionists and dietitians and doctors that specialize in obesity. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And then I even did that 40,000 person study because my She's Max's wife now, but she was traveling for a business, mm-hmm. and I, I had a lot of time on my hands, so I had this dual career. So I was also consulting for the big food industry, mm-hmm. um, which I feel kind of like the Marlboro Man towards the end of his life where he was contrite and felt like he was on the wrong side of the war. I, mm-hmm. I was definitely on the wrong side of the war, right. but, but, but that's what I did. Um, and it's relevant because eventually I figured out that this love yourself thin stuff didn't work, at least not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would kept trying to fill the hole in my heart and then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And I get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And I got progressively more obsessed with food and I really wasted 20, 25 years trying to do that. Wow. It's a soulful journey. I learned a lot about mm-hmm. myself. I'm sure. Um, but in terms of curing the food problem, it really didn't. Mm-hmm. So here's what did. Eventually I realized that I needed another paradigm. Mm-hmm. that I needed to, to flip the paradigm and, and make it more like an alpha wolf, tough love approach with my own impulses. Uh-huh. Um, and the reason I thought of that was, first of all, in the consulting work I was doing, I saw that there were millions, if not billions of dollars and lots of rocket scientists busy engineering these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and exciter toxins and salt and, 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 and it's all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain Mm -hmm. without making you feel satisfied. It doesn't give you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Yeah. Now the reptilian brain is the thing in and of itself. This was another insight. The reptilian brain, which seems to be the seat of addiction seems to be the, the seat of this feast and famine response that says, forget everything else you're starving you have to have this now right Um, the reptilian brain doesn't know love the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment and it's like a bad drinking game it says Mm -hmm. do i eat it do i mate with it or do i kill it (laughs) (laughs) those are the only options (laughs) this is the reptilian brain it's the mammalian brain that kind of evolved on top of that, or maybe God put it there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, but for whatever reason, it sits on top of there, and it says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on the people that I love? What impact does this have sure. on my tribe and my family and you know, more extended civilization to a certain extent? Uh-huh. And then it's the neocortex on top of that that says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on your long-term goals? What impact does that have on your, not only diet and weight loss, but the kind of person you're trying to be in society, your contributions, your work, your music, your art, your spirituality, that's all in the upper brain. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what I was doing was spending 20 years trying to fix the upper brain when the problem was down here. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I eventually, I eventually decided that I was going to have to be an alpha dog. 
an, an alpha wolf. Uh-huh. And when, when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership of the pack by another wolf in the pack, the alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, somebody needs a hug, right? The, the alpha wolf says, you know, grr, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Uh-huh. right? Yeah. Growls in his, and I said, so this is more like this thing inside of me. This is more like a bodily organ inside of me. And there are lots of bodily organs inside of me that press with for impulsive discharge of their of their needs. Like my bladder will say, you know, you really, 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 really have to pee. Mm-hmm. And Lauren, if I, I don't right now, but if I did, <laughs> I'm I, glad I, to I, hear it. <laughs> <laughs> if I did, I would tell my bladder, I'm sorry, but I'm talking to Lauren now. This is a <laughs> professional call. You're right. going to have to wait until later. I'm not uh-huh. going to ignore you. It's not like I'm saying, well, I'll schedule on the on the calendar for next Thursday. Sure. I'll take care of my authentic needs, but you know, later. Right. Right. Or if there's an attractive person outside, you don't run down and kiss them because mm-hmm. your reproductive organs are generating those impulses. Right. right. Um, and we can go on and on and on. So mm-hmm. I said, well, why is this impulse to eat generated by the reptilian brain any different? Mm-hmm. It's just, just because I'm, I'm, I'm confused by all this, you know, depth psychology about it, but really it's just an impulse and it should be able to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So here's what I did, and it's a little embarrassing because okay. you heard my credentials. I'm a, I'm a sophisticated. Um, mm-hmm. Am I over talking? Do you want to say something? No, you're fine. Keep going. Okay. So, so uh, you, you know I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I've been in all these periodicals and journals and papers and TV shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the way that I recovered from overeating is not sophisticated at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided that... My reptilian brain, I wasn't going to publish this. This was, um, this was just going to be my private recovery. Yeah. So it was just all internally. Okay, I'll, I'll say it. I, I wasn't, I, I had this, my reptilian brain, I decided to call it my inner pig. I wish I called it something different. I wish I called it a food monster or a food demon because I wouldn't have taken all the heat that I get now uh-huh. for calling it a pig. But I, I said, that's my inner pig. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I can imagine how that would go over. <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's, it's been a rough ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I said, I'm going to draw very clear lines in the sand mm-hmm. so that I know the difference between healthy behavior and a healthy behavior. Because if I'm going to be able to manage this thing, I have to know when it's awake. I'm going to have to know. I can't be confused about when it's talking versus when I'm talking. Absolutely. So, so I decided that I would create crystal clear rules. For example, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturday or Sunday. Crystal okay. clear. Mm-hmm. That way, if I'm in line at Starbucks and there's a big hairy chocolate bar in the counter that's calling my name mm-hmm. and it's and I hear this little voice inside that says, Glenn, you worked out hard enough and you're not going to gain any weight. Mm-hmm. You might as well just start tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. Yippee, let's have some right now. Uh-huh. I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. Uh-huh. on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't need farm animals tell me what to do. Yep. Why'd you find this entertaining? This was your inner dialogue. That, that, <laughs> that was my inner. That was my inner dialogue. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and it's really weird, but that's the first thing that started to work. It, it wasn't a. It wasn't a total miracle. It's not like I got sure. thin the next month, right? Of course, yeah. But but what happened was is it wiped away all the BS, all these notions that my mama didn't love me enough. And mm. I can tell you a story about that too. Yeah. Um, and, and, and all these notions that, um, 
you know, I was comfort eating or eating to numb myself out. And mm -hmm. there's some truth to that, but it's really not, it's really secondary to mm -hmm. the very bad habit and understanding the mechanism of, of action. Mm -hmm. And I would get these extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. So I was no longer confused or powerless. Then I started playing with the rules and I realized I had to make rules that I was willing to follow. Mm -hmm. There was no point trying to follow a really strict diet. Um, as a matter of fact, the stricter the diet, the harder it was to sustain. Oh, sure. Anti right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I've subsequently learned that's because binging is, is an erroneous activation of that survival response when you signal the brain that you're in a feast and famine environment. If you are on too strict of a diet, your body thinks that calories and nutrition are not available. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the way we must have evolved, there were environments like that, and as soon as there was food available, if there was a harvest, you got to hoard it, right? Go all out, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so that's what worked for me. Over the course of eight years, I would keep notes about what the pig said and why it was wrong. Mm -hmm. For example, when the pig said, you can just start tomorrow, it'll be just as easy, uh, that's actually a lie. Yeah, absolutely. For several reasons. It's a lie because when you have a craving and you indulge that craving by the principle of neuroplasticity what fires together wires together mm -hmm. and you are more likely to have the craving tomorrow and you're more likely to indulge it tomorrow also yep. secondarily when you have a thought and you reward that thought with sugar or starch or some concentrated form of calories your brain is set up to figure out what thoughts lead to food rewards reward absolutely mm -hmm. So you're more likely to have the thought, I will start tomorrow, yep. tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So when you're in a hole, you got to stop digging. Always use the present moment to be healthy. Yep. Your, pig, your pig says one more, one more bad day. You say no, one more healthy day. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So I would, keep, I would keep notes and scrupulously analyze the pig's false logic. Mm -hmm. and, and I found that what was, that was, like, was like pouring sawdust on the previously greased chute between impulse and response. Wait, what was that analogy? <laughs> Doing what? Well, well, it used to be that I would have the craving for chocolate and then I would just do it. I'd have the impulse oh, sure. and, okay. and I'd eat it. Mm -hmm. um, and there would be this little voice of justification in my head that would say, well, you can just start tomorrow and it'll be just as easy. Uh -huh. But then when I disempowered that voice of justification, the only thing that I could say would be effort. You know, mm -hmm. screw it. I'm just going to do it anyway. Sure. And then, of course, screw it. You already blew it. You might as well yes. just bend your face off until the end of the day and yeah, yeah. start it. Um, and there, I could go down a whole list of things mm -hmm. that people's pigs like like to say. Like to say, sure. Um, and o over time, I I evolved the system. I learned um, I learned a lot more about how to switch nervous systems. Like when that erroneous emergency response is activated, that says, you know, you you got to eat as much as you can. I learned more about how to disempower that. For, for example, when you recognize that that's happening, if you take a deep breath, but then breathe out for longer than you breathe in. Now, Laurie Hammond calls them 7-11 breaths. Breathe in for 7, out for kind of 11. Right. You're, you're actually activating your parasympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. which is a – you're a doctor. I, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, but, <laughs> no, well, well, but please, yeah, keep going. Well, well that, yeah. we essentially have two nervous systems. Sure. One, is, one is for – resting and digesting and problem solving and sitting and thinking and relaxing. Mm -hmm. And another one is for running away from hungry bears for, right. 
you know, dealing with emergencies. And so when this emergency response system is erroneously activated and it says, eat, 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 and just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt, Mm -hmm. then if you can, before acting on that, take a deep breath and breathe out for longer, you're signaling the brain there's not an emergency. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it in nature, if we were running from a hungry bear, we wouldn't have time to breathe out for longer than we breathe in. And that's why this seems to work. So, So we would do that. And I say we because this evolved into a whole movement. Um, So we we would do that. And then we also have people carry around a piece of paper and a pen or their smartphone. And they just write down exactly what the pig is saying. Like when when you recognize it wants you to cross the line, you say, wait a minute. Why do you want me to break my rules and binge pig? We, we call it a binge if you're going to cross over the line. Yeah. Why, why do you want me to break my rules pig? Mm-hmm. And then you write it down. The act of writing is also enough for brain activity. Mm-hmm. Like okay. active writing. And so that also kind of moves the battleground to the place where logic reigns okay. supreme. Okay. So you're switching from the low ground to the high ground by doing that. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you do all that disempowerment. And then you ask yourself, well, why am I, ha- why, why do I feel like a happier, better person? if I stay with my original rule. Mm-hmm. So for me, it would be I'm one step closer to um, a medication-free, superactive lifestyle, or I'm one step closer to, you know, um, being able to climb mountains faster and enjoy more time on top. I, I have my whole list of reasons. Sure. So you, you, you bring some happiness into the present to replace the short-term gratification you would have, you would have gotten. Right. And, and you link it to the character you're trying to develop, to the kind of person you're trying to be mm-hmm. with food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I'll fast forward eight years after having kept that journal and had, you know, dozens of squeals and dozens of corrections. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting divorced in 2015 and I'm a minor part of a publishing company. And I'm on the phone with the CEO and he says, you know, Glenn, we, we really need to write a book of our own so we can prove that we know what we're doing and attract better authors. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I have this crazy journal that I kept and it was really effective because I, I went from like, probably around 280 down to about 200, like more like nice. 215 these days. But, um, yeah. but my triglycerides went down and my psoriasis went away and fabulous. This, yeah. all, all, all types of stuff was right. fantastic. So I, I have a success story and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a psychologist and a consultant for the industry. I kind of have a good position to have yeah. a platform. So he says, write a book. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I said, okay, I spent the summer turning into a book. I send it to him. I sent him the first draft. He calls me back two weeks later. He says, oh, my God, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And he proceeded to lose 100 pounds. Or, or wow, that's 98. amazing. 98, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So, so we published it along the way, and the rest is history. Now we have more reviews than The Da Vinci Code and um, mil- millions of readers, and it's, it's crazy. That's incredible. Wow. So just to clarify, it sounds like what you were saying, the original idea of traditional psychology with respect to binge eating is essentially love yourself, figure out where the root is, try to, you know, from, from, your, from history as opposed to just tell yourself no with, you know, the higher brain rather than the lower. Is that essentially it in a nutshell? There's not enough emphasis on practical techniques. I'm, I'm not saying that mindful eating and self-love is a bad idea. It's a good right. idea. Mm-hmm. Um, can I tell you one more story? Yeah, please. So part of that 40,000 person study was yeah. like the last vestige of my trying to figure out um, how psychology impacted my overeating. Mm-hmm. And I would intercept people on the internet when they were typing for stress solutions, searching for stress solutions. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, what foods can't you stop eating when you feel stressed? Mm-hmm. 
And then I asked them what they were stressed about. And I found a couple of patterns. People who were feeling lonely, depressed, or brokenhearted, they would drive towards chocolate. And chocolate was always my thing, right? Mm -hmm. People who were feeling um, stressed at work, they tended to drive towards crunchy, salty things. Mm -hmm. And people who were feeling stressed at home, they tended to drive towards soft, chewy, like bagels, pasta, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is fascinating. Um, That was something I thought I might write about. But before I did, I called my mom, who's also a therapist and raised me Uh and and also a chocoholic. She Uh is worse than me with chocolate. Mm -hmm. So I called my mom and I said, mom, I have this really interesting thing. And you know what? I was not in a great marriage. I was not super happy. I was lonely and brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. I said, it kind of makes sense. But why, how did this pattern get set up? Mm -hmm. And she gets this horrible look on her face. She says, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. I said, mom, it's okay. Whatever it is, it's 40 years ago. And, you know, I I love you. I forgive you. I just want to figure this out. She said, well, when you were one year old in 1965, your father was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. I thought I'm going to be a, you know, a widow with two small kids. And because we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And at the same time, my father, your grandfather had just gotten out of prison And we didn't even know where he was for a couple of years. And I didn't know he was guilty. And he'd been my whole life. So I was horribly depressed and anxious all the time. Mm -hmm. And half the time when you came crawling over wanting love or to play or, you know, some healthy food, I didn't have the wherewithal inside of me. I was too busy staring at the wall. So I kept a little bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. Remember, Bosco, Uh, you're you're not old enough for that. No, Um, (laughs) but, but I know, I see where this is going. Yeah. Okay. And she'd say, go get your Bosco, Glenn. And she said, you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator. You take out the Bosco and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. Oh, wow. And which is sad. And, you yeah. know, and so we had kind of a moving moment and a little cry and we forgave each other. And, mm-hmm. and the result of that, you would think if figuring out why you're overeating is the route to solving it. Right. You would think that I would be better after that. You think Mm -hmm. we'd have this catharsis, um, you know, a big hug and a big cry, and I would never struggle with chocolate again. But you know, the the opposite happened. I mean, we we had the movie moment. I did forgive myself. I was less harsh towards myself after that. But, but, um, and and I learned a lot about my mom. It was a good conversation to have. Mm -hmm. But, but what happened after that, Lauren, was there was this little voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of the marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go Mm -hmm. get some right now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was that voice of justification. Yeah, made that connection explicit, essentially. Yeah. And it it changed my perception of emotional eating. I used to think that if emotions were the fire, then the solution was you had to put out the fire. But then I realized you could have a well-contained fire with a great fireplace in a living room. And that's an asset and not a liability. People gather around it. They tell stories. They hug and they cry and they laugh and they kiss. And they make memories. It's an asset, not a liability. Sure. It's the fireplace that's important. And it's this voice of justification, what I call my inner pig, was poking holes in that fireplace. And that's what allowed the ashes to get down and keep, keep burning down the house. And so... What I, was, what I really did with this crazy technique was I severed the link between emotional upset and overeating. I mean, I'm still lonely mm-hmm. sometimes. I haven't found the yep, person yep. I'm supposed to be with. And I, I still have the same feelings sometimes. And I've learned other ways to deal with them. And I've mm-hmm. you know, had therapy and everything. But, but um, 
but but I I, I never break my rules and binge because of it because right. there's that solid fireplace in place now gotcha but we try okay. to sever the link between emotional eating and and between emotions and overeating so tell me if this is true or not my understanding of emdr is essentially a similar concept where you're trying to take a pathway in the brain and change it so that that memory no longer has the same limbic system yeah. emotional overdrive yeah. is it it, a similar it's, concept it's, it's very similar i mean i'm okay. not an emdr expert yeah but very- right but gotcha. Okay. Very similar concept. Very yeah. cool. So what would you like boiling down your story and probably maybe some, some highlights of the book, what are some tips that you would give for somebody that's struggling with stress eating, overeating, binge eating? How can they leverage your approach? Where would you say they should start? Okay. So first of all, forget everything you've heard about overeating <laughs> and what to do with it. Okay. Okay. Um, secondly, make sure you have a plan where you're thoroughly nourished and mm-hmm. You know, I, I very much believe in the benefits of intermittent fasting and everything like that, but I have much more success with people in the first three to six months if they can have regular meals throughout the day. Because mm-hmm. then when, you're, when your pig says you're starving, there's no real reason for it anymore. Right. right? Uh-huh. Um, and then if you want to go back to intermittent fasting or whatever else you do after that, you can, you can do that. Mm-hmm. So m- make sure you're taking care of yourself first. Sure. Then choose one simple rule. Mm-hmm. Now, most overeaters are very good dieters. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they live their lives by the nursery rhyme, which says when she was good, she was very, very good. Oh, yeah. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want to get out of that nursery rhyme, yep. right? We want to get out of this feast and famine roller coaster. So you're going to start with one simple rule that probably won't have you lose any weight to start with. Mm-hmm. But you're not, hopefully you won't gain any weight and you're just going to prove to yourself that you can control this urge inside of you. Yep. So one, one simple rule, which is something you can and would do that doesn't feel too burdensome, um, that definitely doesn't restrict your calories and nutrition too much, mm-hmm. that, that seems easy, yet it would be a clear signal. I'll give you some examples in a moment. It would be a clear signal to yourself that you're, turning the ship around and getting on the right track. Mm-hmm. So for example, knew this truck driver who ate fast food three meals a day every day. And he thought about this idea and he said, well, you know what? I can't stop eating fast food because I'm, I'm on the road all day long. I don't have a choice, but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. Mm-hmm. And he proceeded with that one simple rule to take control. He lost a couple of pounds. Mm-hmm. And then that re- he started feeling better and it's, it's not the couple of pounds or, um, or the, the rule in particular. It's the difference between feeling like the master and the slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until people start to adopt this kind of approach, the, their pig or their food demon or whatever you want to call it, it it's really broken their Charge. spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they feel like they're not able to control it. They feel like they're powerless about it. They're, they often feel hopeless and despairing if they're ever going to fix this. Right. Um, and so... The difference between doing that one simple rule and not doing that one simple rule, it's not monumental in terms of the physical impact, mm-hmm. monumental in terms of the psychological impact. Sure. Like, damn, I'm the master and not the slave. Yes. I can be the master. And that just means everything. Yeah. So I, I tell people to stay with that for you know, at least a week or two. Some people stay with it for months mm-hmm. um, until you really believe and know how this game is played. Mm-hmm. Then notice your cravings and um, and start to ask yourself if you can wake up at that moment there is a craving and take that 7-Eleven breath, write down what your 
pig is saying why why it wants you to break the rules. Mm -hmm. um, take another 7-Eleven breath, write down why it's wrong, and then write down why you would be happier and feel like a better person if you stuck with your rule right now. Mm -hmm. um, keep doing that. Keep looking for reasons until you feel calm and you no longer want to binge. Mm -hmm. And the side benefit, besides the fact that you'll get control of your binging, is that you'll learn a stress management technique that'll make you calmer. Yeah. And this, beco this becomes a positive addiction, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, th so those, are, those are the basic steps. Gotcha. Those yeah, are the basic so steps. And kind of what that sounds like to me in a way, just again, by way of analogy, is when people are first starting to learn to meditate, that recognition that you're thoughts, the racing thoughts in your mind are not necessarily you. There's a manager above that that can say, no, 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 come back. And once you recognize that you actually have that power, as you say, that empowers you to make the changes that you need to make. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, and so once somebody's done this, they've maybe habit stacked where they've got that one rule like you're describing and then kind of do one more thing, one more thing. What would you say, is there something that anybody needs to do in order to start thinking like a permanently thin person from that point forward? Well, well what you, yeah, there are a couple of things. Mm -hmm. You need to understand that um, there are some other steps, but, but you, you, you need to understand that it's not really about installing these Nazi food police inside of your brain. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. What it's about is becoming a different kind of person with food. So if I ask people, now I, I eventually wound up making a rule that says I'll just never have chocolate again because it just seemed like the best thing. I don't recommend that for everybody. Two thirds sure. of my clients are moderators and not abstainers, but for some people, certain substances just don't work. And it was like that with chocolate with Matt. Haven't had it in maybe 10 years. Um, that's an exaggeration, maybe eight years. Yeah. So, so, so um, I was brought up by a Jewish mother, so I'm compulsively you honest. You have to be very honest. <laughs> I got, yeah, I, I got to correct myself all the time. Um, so, so, so I've lost my train of thought for one second because I talked about my Jewish guilt. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about uh, what to do to change the mindset going forward. Okay. What you then want to do is look for you want to think about the kind of person you're trying to become with food. So if I ask people, do you think you could never have chocolate again? They usually say, I could never do that. That's, that's crazy. If I say, do you think you could become the kind of person who doesn't have chocolate? They go, oh, maybe I could do that, right? Character is just the habitual way that we respond to temptation without knowing it, right? And so what you're really doing is breaking a behavior pattern habitually until it becomes a part of you and then it's second nature. I actually don't have a rule anymore that says I can't have chocolate. It's not, it's not on my food plan anymore. I don't remember when I took it off because sooner or later, I just became a person that never had chocolate. I, it, yeah. I, I, did, I didn't want it. It wasn't part of my identity. Right. I, I like the benefits of not having chocolate and I don't feel deprived. I don't feel like I'm missing out on some horrible thing in life. Mm -hmm. I look at the chocolate bars in the supermarket that used to torture me. I mean, I would stand there for half an hour, should I or shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. And I look at them and they look like a big bag of chemicals to me. What this says is that character trumps willpower. Mm -hmm. So you want to recognize that that's the end goal. Yeah. The second thing is you want to start to take an inventory of all of your trigger foods and dangerous food behaviors. And we don't want to get carried away with this because um, 
it's, it's kind of like if you were a city traffic planner, you're looking at the intersections where you have to protect people from having accidents. You would not want to put a red light at every intersection unless it was truly dangerous because you're slowing down the, you know, commerce and, and connection in the city. On the other hand, you don't want to leave an intersection unregulated, which is too busy or too dangerous. And there are some places like, you know, in the middle of Manhattan where there are traffic lights every 42 feet or so. And, and there are some places like way out on Long Island in Suffolk County where there are, you know, 55 mile an hour speed limits and the roads intersect and there's no stop sign or yield sign at all because you can just see in all directions and people don't, the, the roads are hardly ever used. So that, that's what you're really doing with your rules. You're creating your own little city and you're looking for the danger spots and you're trying to balance between um, satiation and enjoyment and freedom with food right. and protecting your health and fitness goals. Just like if you were a city traffic planner, you'd be balancing between the safety of the populace and protecting the ability to, to travel around. Right. Um, so so you, you take an inventory of that. I've got some free stuff I'll give people at the end of the interview they can use to, to do Perfect. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you take an inventory and you design your own little city. Mm-hmm. Um, usually comes out between, between like two and six rules. Gotcha. Um, okay. And then you play the same game and you keep going. Mm-hmm. And then you experiment with different things to figure out what your authentic needs might be, mm-hmm. right? So for example, the pig will present things to you that it's either the chocolate bar or nothing. Right. Either you're going to starve or you're going to have the chocolate bar. <laughs> you need to teach the pig that you're not going to starve if you don't have the chocolate bar. Right. Sometimes that means eating real food. Mm. So I experimented with a whole bunch of things and eventually I discovered if I had a kale banana smoothie when I was having an intense craving for chocolate that was bothering me, I didn't get high the same way I would with chocolate because, right. you know, chocolate has theobramine and caffeine and all that, that stuff. It's a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt, would feel content. Mm-hmm. I was looking for energy. I was probably looking for some minerals or magnesium or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I would feel content. It was like I scratched the itch, but mm-hmm. there wasn't this manic up and down. It was more like a kind of an even right. a sustenance. And you'll teach your survival drive to crave the right thing like that over time. Mm-hmm. That, that's the essence of the, the methodology. Yeah, fascinating. So is there anything that I have not asked you that you want to make sure that you leave with our audience? Um, I want to be sure you understand that emotional eating is a two-way street. Most people okay. think that, you know, the emotions are the fire and it wants to get out and burn the house down. So if they're eating with what they perceive to be comfort, they think it's because there's some emotional problem that's not solved. And I, I think I debunked some of that and I said, well, you can, you can draw a, you can put a fireplace around that and you can make yourself safe no matter what emotion you're feeling. So sure. you can sever a link. But people think that the emotion causes the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the emotion causes the desire, which then has to sneak through that voice of justification to the behavior. Yep. But it's equally true that the behavior causes the emotion. That's the part that people don't know. Mm-hmm. For example, let's look at anxiety. Mm-hmm. Anxiety has a lot of physiological correlates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a medical doctor. I just sound like one sometimes. <laughs> 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 um, but, but, you know, perspiration and respiration and galvanic skin response and blood pressure and, you know, all this stuff. You start to sweat a little bit. Sure. And, and there are a lot of animal studies where they show that those physiological correlates of anxiety, they can't ask an animal, are you feeling anxious? But a lot of those physiological correlates can actually be conditioned by food rewards. Mm. So 
baboons were taught to have higher blood pressure by giving them a sugar reward every time their blood pressure was elevated. Oh, wow. Biofeedback. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's operant conditioning. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, okay. it, yeah. It's like biofeedback or operant conditioning. Mm-hmm. And, and so people think that the only way to get to sleep when they're anxious is to overeat. But what if overeating is causing the anxiety? Mm-hmm. And, and what, what the studies seem to show is not so much that, um, that it causes anxiety right at that moment. It actually lowers anxiety a little bit, there's but it raises the, mm-hmm. there's a rebound and it stays higher. Yeah. So you're conditioning yourself to be a more anxious person. Mm-hmm. So if you can tolerate the slightly lower, the slightly heightened anxiety for a little while, it's like the smoking also. Mm-hmm. Like smoking will keep you stressed all the time and just make you a little less stressed when you have it. Right. If you get, get over the hump, you're actually going to be a much less stressed person sure, yeah. overall. Absolutely. So it goes both ways. It goes yeah. both ways. Yeah. And that's just physiology in general. Like any, the, the body's always trying to seek balance. So anytime you push in one direction, you're going to get a rebound in the opposite direction. If you're, if it's direct like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So where can people go to learn more about you? Okay. So I know they're all thinking, why does Dr. Lauren have this weird ass psychologist on with a pig inside of him? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it sounds kind of harsh and and cruel or something like that. But I wanted you to hear that it's really not. It's really a very compassionate methodology. So I I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions. They're all free. Mm -hmm. And you can download them at neverbingeagain.com if you click the big red button. But there are two more things you'll get if you do that. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list. You you will get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Oh, nice. yeah, so those electronic copies are, are free. We also have paperback and Audible, but there's a charge for that. Right. Um, and the third thing you will get is a set of food plan starter templates. Mm-hmm. The program is diet agnostic. As long as you are nutrifying yourself, you can make this work. Mm-hmm. So we created simple sets of rules for any dietary philosophy. So whether you're you know, trying to do high carb or low carb or vegan or point calorie or counting your calorie counting. I, mean, I, I have my personal feelings about which ones are, are healthier, but that's not really what the program is about. The program is how do you stick to any reasonable program that you, that you want to stick to. So you've got a whole set of food plan starter templates. So let neverbingeagain.com click the big red button. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, I will link to that in the show notes and thank you again so much for your time, Glenn. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. It was great. For listening to Christian Natural Health. This show is run by you, so please write in with topic and guest suggestions for future shows. For more great content, subscribe to Dr. Lauren's blog at www.drlaurendeville.com or follow her on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Lauren Deville. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating in iTunes. It really helps us to stand out so other people can discover great content as well. Have a great week and God bless you. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. 
It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.